What's up gamers and welcome to Lost at Sea Gaming. I am Hulking Yoda, the captain of this ship, the SS Gamer. And you have just stepped inside my captain's quarters, my weekly gaming update show where I talk about my favorite gaming news topic of the past week, discuss what games I've been playing, give tips on some of those games, as well as issue a weekly relevant gaming related decree. This week, it's all about discussing when is the right time to move on from a previous gaming generation. So let's talk about it and dive right into the episode with my news catch of the week. Gamers, whenever I look at my catch of the week, I always try to look back at the previous week that was or whatever the most recent big piece of gaming news that really resonates with me is that I want to talk about. And this week, there wasn't really any major announcements or anything like that. But what stood out to me more than anything else was the fact that EA and Respawn Entertainment, the publisher and developer of Star Wars Jedi Survivor and Jedi Fallen Order, of course, but they announced this past week that they are just now starting work on a PS4 and an Xbox One version of Jedi Survivor. And to me, I just immediately threw my hands up in the air and said, but why? <laughs> there are lots of reasons here that I want to cover as to why I don't feel that this makes any kind of logical sense at all. So first off, let me just talk about the length of a gaming generation, because the big question I want to answer and kind of discuss or, or kind of debate out there into cyberspace is when is the right time to move on from a previous gaming generation? Well, you look at generations in the past, right? And for the most part, I would say up until the Xbox 360, PS3 and Wii era of gaming, every generation typically lasted anywhere from four to six years. So within that sweet spot, but it was always typically, oh, five years, you know, five years, we'll get a new console. And if you look back at history, that is what it will show you. Between the PS1 and the PS2, there was four years between 1996 and October of 2000. Between the PS2 and the PS3, there was six years between October of 2000 and November of 2006. The Xbox was unique in the fact that it came out a year after the PS2. So it came out in 2001, November. And in November of 2005, four years later, they wanted to get a jump on the competition. So they released the 360 that year earlier, and that was four years my point is, you look right in there, and that right there is kind of proving my point. Sony kind of sticks or stuck. Now, when you look at the PS4 and then the Xbox One as well, both consoles, they came out within a week apart in November of 2013. And we did not get the next console upgrade, the next generation, if you will, until November of 2020 which was a whole seven years later. Now, I know that there was a lot of people at the time saying that they were honestly still content with the Xbox One and PS4 era to keep going. So when you think about that, I mean, seven years is a long time. Gamers, I remember at that point in time, even when I got to six years, not that I was... I would say in a negative place with gaming because I've never really been in a negative place with gaming. It's always just remained that top passion of mine as far as hobbies are concerned. And 
when it came to the sixth year, the seventh year, even I was getting uh, kind of antsy. I'm like, all right, well, where is the next generation? Like, I want to see the next hardware. It's It was always kind of just, a, I don't want to say a rite of passage every five years or so, but it was just a fun event to look forward to. And you know that every five, six years, you have something new and fresh to kind of refresh and re-energize the, the whole medium, if you will. New controller designs and console designs and features and just the, the technology and graphical aspects of all the upgrades and things that come with a new generation. It was always exciting times for me and a lot of my friends at the time. So when we got to a seventh year that this generation lasted for the 360 and the PS3, it was just like, man, was that too long? And that is where we started seeing the beginnings of what I would call and, and what the industry calls iterative consoles. So when you really think about that and you think about seven years, that is a long time on one generation of hardware. Now, I get it. Iterative consoles really kind of started to catch fire, I guess, if you will, in the Xbox One PS4 era with the PS4 Pro, the Xbox One X. But believe it or not, gamers, those are not the first what I would consider iterative consoles. To be honest, you think all the way back to the PS1. And I mean the P-S-O-N-E, the number one spelled out. If any of you are too young to remember what a PS1 is, that was the really tiny PlayStation console, the original PlayStation. And they spelled out the number one. And it was almost kind of like a white gray. It wasn't even like the darker gray that the regular PlayStation was. And it was more portable. You could put a little screen on it and everything. I mean, that was really the kind of first foray into an iterative console. I would say that PS2 continued that with the PS2 Slim. Now, each one of these, they weren't as much as a jump as I would say from your base console, the Xbox One to an Xbox One X or the PS4 to PS4 Pro. But they were still upgrades from what that original base model of console was. So iterative consoles have been around for generations is the bottom line as I'm trying to get at here. But my point is we never saw the length of a generation go as long as it did until the PS4 and Xbox One era. Now here we are and we are in the Series X and PS5 generation and this November is going to mark three years since this generation started which a part of me feels like, man, I can't believe it's already been three years. But then there's a part of me that's like, has it only been three years? <laughs> it's, it's very conflicting. But when I see something like Jedi Survivor has been announced as, hey, we're, we're actually going to be making a PS4 and Xbox One version, I just, I say why? Because here's a few things for me. And, and the reason why I want to ask this question of when do we move on from previous consoles? So, from the outset, Jedi Survivor was announced as a next-gen only game. So I, I would assume that from a business standpoint, if you're Microsoft and Sony, you're going to want people, gamers, to adopt your next-gen console. Therefore, you need incentives for those people to want to upgrade. Well, I would say the major incentive for upgrading to a next-generation console is not just the bells and whistles and the tech, but also games that you can't play on the current hardware that you may already own. So if somebody has a PS4 or a PS4 Pro and say they haven't taken the step to upgrade to a PS5 and they see this announcement of Jedi Survivor, but they were debating on getting a PS5 because they're a massive Star Wars fan and they loved Fallen Order and they want to be able to play this. Well, now 
you may have just stopped them from getting a PS5 because, oh, well, why do I have to buy a PS5 then? I mean, I, I get it. It's probably with a, a year or so away before it's released. But hey, I can still enjoy my PS4 because guess what? God of War Ragnarok is on PS4. Horizon Forbidden West is on PS4. There's so many games that have been cross-generational. And don't get me wrong, I do feel and agree that when a console generation changes, I do feel that there should be cross-generational games that bridge the generational gap for that first year or two max. So there is the answer ultimately to my question here. When should you move on or developers and we as a community of gamers move on? And I'm not telling everybody what to do. I'm just saying in my opinion, I feel like two years, after two years, the generation that's new has been on the market at this point. All right, from that point on, I feel like we need to be just purely, in this case, PS5 and Series X releases only. Because I feel like you've given two years to your supporters and your fan base to have the option and the opportunity to upgrade. And if they haven't upgraded at that point, what are they really waiting for? Are they really the consumer that you want to have with you throughout the rest of your generation that you're currently in? Do you want to waste that much time of this generation having last generation hardware in a sense hold you back or take up time and resources developing for all these generational consoles and that was my other point with star wars is i would much rather ea and respawn funnel all their resources and all of the whether it's monetary or just the the body count of people and developers i'd rather all of that be focused on hey let's move forward with jedi as a series, not move backwards or stay stagnant with Survivor and and go backwards from a generational standpoint. Let's move forward and look at the third Jedi game in this supposed trilogy, and let's start working on that. But to an, and if that had been the announcement, hey, we've just started work in pre-production on Jedi Survivor's sequel. Woo! I would have been super stoked. Oh man, would I have been excited! But to tell me that you're just starting production on a PS4, Xbox One version of the game. I just don't understand. You're taking away incentives of people wanting to to upgrade for your for the next gen consoles. You are also, in my opinion, some people could take that as disrespect and a slap in the face that bought this generational game. Well, you were touting it as like a next gen experience, but now you're pretty much telling me that people can still experience this on last gen. And don't get me wrong, I get it. I understand that the game is going to be completely. Uh, I won't say completely. It'll be very different as far as certain technological aspects of it, maybe in the background, the frame rate, the graphical details, maybe here or there. But are there going to be things that we really, really notice? Because you look at something like God of War Ragnarok or Horizon Forbidden West, as I had mentioned earlier, and you look at the two generations and you look at the two versions of the games, and there's not a whole lot that you can massively differentiate visually from those games. And even from a gameplay standpoint, from what I know of it, you don't really pick up or notice a whole lot. Yes, when you're playing the PS5 and full 4K and things like that, you can, wow, this looks great. And then there's the DualSense aspect with the PS5 as opposed to the DualShock 4. I get it. But at the same time, I still feel like it's not a full-on next-gen like what it could be. And that's where I'm at. I'm just kind of frustrated. I, I still see PS4 and Xbox One games being released. And this November is going to be a decade 10 years since these consoles released, and yet we are still starting development on and creating games and releasing games on these consoles. 
again, I understand there's also the point of, well, from Microsoft and PlayStation standpoint, there are millions upon millions upon millions of owners of these consoles. So we still have a revenue stream that we could pull from, from all those millions of people that are a lot more than PS5 and Series X is in their install base. Well, I get it, but you're, you're slowing down, in my opinion, potentially your increase of that install base for PS5 and Series X by not giving people reasons to upgrade. <laughs> if you're continuously allowing those people that are still on last gen to stay on last gen and giving them things that were supposed to be just for current gen and next gen, then what reason do they have to fork out $500 for your next-gen box, quote-unquote. It just baffles me, gamers. I don't understand it at all. And I, it really disappoints me that we are still seeing this happen almost three years into the Series X and the PS5's generation. Because I feel like it, we're almost at the halfway point. I would say probably by next summer, maybe even as far as next fall, I would say as far as this console generation is concerned, PS5 Series X, I think that is where we're going to be. Honestly, that's probably going to be the halfway point from Sony and Microsoft standpoint. Now, I know there's been talk about iterative consoles for both. Microsoft's already come out and said, boom, we ain't doing an iterative console. The Series X is considered our iterative console. The Series S is the base console of this generation for us. And Sony is not really... 100% confirmed or denied anything, but there is massive speculation that a PS5 Pro is in the works so that we may see that next year. The PS5 uh, detachable hard drive later this year and the PS5 Pro next year, all rumors and speculation, of course. My point is, though, is come on, guys. Like, we're already almost halfway through this generation and we're still getting cross-generational games, games being announced for last gen. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. So... Kind of a rant and kind of a, a vent to you guys this week as far as my catch of the week is concerned, but it did catch my eye for sure. And I just kind of wanted to, to speak it and verbalize and vocalize it out there to you guys. And if you have any thoughts or opinions, please let me know in the comments section, either here on Spotify or send me an email or, or follow me on Twitter or Instagram. I got all the, the links and everything at the end of the episode, but I'm very curious what your thoughts are. But ultimately to answer the question, when should we move on from previous generation hardware or the previous generation in general? My answer, in my opinion, is once we hit the two-year mark from then on, let's see and focus on what this next generation of gaming can really fully bring us. So that's this week's Catch of the Week. Now let's open up my captain's log and see what games I've been playing. To four years for its earlier consoles. Gamers, as we open up my captain's log for what I played this past week, the first game I want to start with is one that I haven't played in about a month and a half or so, and that's Sonic Frontiers. Sonic Frontiers was kind of a surprise for me this past week because, to be honest with you, I really did not expect to play any Xbox at all. Uh, until Starfield, to be 100% honest with you gamers out there. Uh, Final Fantasy 16 has just really kind of enraptured my soul. And so I had, you know, you're playing a game and you really just don't have a desire to play anything else. Well, that's kind of how I have felt with Final Fantasy 16. But when it came down to, well, I feel like I might pass out and I don't really want to run the risk of missing some cutscenes and some important story content. And I just, you know what? I don't want to run the risk of doing that. So I'm going to try to play something else. 
And for whatever reason, Sonic Frontiers jumped out at me that night. And I chose over the two different play sessions that night and the very next morning. I had about three hours that I was able to put into Sonic Frontiers because this game is one of those games where I go back to it after a while, having not played it. And when I go back to it, I'm just like, oh man, <laughs> I am in love again. And it was no different this time. And the three hours that I played were, were just awesome. If you have been following and listening to me for a while, the last episode, last Captain's Quarters, where I talked about my time in Sonic Frontiers, I had just gotten to the third island, Chaos Island. And I hadn't done anything at all. I just kind of ran around, looked around a little bit, saw what was going on, and then saved it and turned it off. And that was where I ended it. Well, that is where I picked up this time, was right there at the beginning of Chaos Island and exploring and doing things on it. But since I had last played, Sega had released the next part of the update that they had promised. And, you know, I had done actually a catch the week months ago on the timeline of what the Sonic releases were going to look like as far as DLC. And this was the second portion of that, which was all about Sonic's birthday. So I did have the option when I first loaded up the game to go into it with the different banners and uh, wardrobe accessories and things like that and music and different, uh, the cocoa, the little guys that you can collect and then trade in for uh, upgrades to your speed and your health. Those guys actually were, <laughs> you could have them to where they were wearing birthday hats. So anyways, I was like, sure, I'll have fun with it. I turned on the birthday filter essentially. And there was a nice little frame around the screen that had happy birthday, Sonic and all kinds of bright colors. And Sonic himself was wearing like birthday glasses and also a birthday hat. And like I said, the Coco, they had little birthday hats on themselves. And the music was pretty funny as well, because when you first boot up in there, there's a little happy birthday song jingle that they kind of do. So definitely interesting. Um, I will say that I turned that filter off for my second play session, which was two hours. I played for about 45 minutes to an hour the first night and first play session. And I kept it on that whole time. It was fun. But when it came time the next day, I was like, you know what? I kind of, I, I just want to play it the way it's meant to be played. The normal filter, no filters, you know, not, nothing like that. Just the general basic Sonic Frontiers visuals, which I love. So Chaos Island, if you didn't le listen to my last episode, the description I had given of it, basically it's, it's almost like it's this massive set of islands, volcanic islands that are in the sky because there are massive gaps of separation between these different islands. And you're kind of like in the clouds and I don't know, it's just really cool the way it's laid out, but it's kind of overcast. And the, if you've ever looked at a volcano or the ground uh, around a volcano, just that crumbly gray blackish kind of color, that is pretty much what the terrain is that you're running around. in now, don't get me wrong. There are some, some greenery areas with some trees or plants here or there, some bushes, but it's definitely the minority. And of course, you have all of the, the ruins that have been left uh, from the, the race of beings that used to live here in these locations that you've, you've come across these ruins on the other two islands that I've played as well. So I pretty much did more of what I've continued and always have done in Sonic Frontiers, which is, you know, run around and do different challenges that are spread throughout the different areas of the island. There was a cyberspace uh, location. There was two of them that I actually did. And I've told you guys before, it's arguably these are my favorite part of the game where it's basically all about speed. There are different challenges that you can get uh, completions on and get vault keys 
for the completion of each challenge, like beat the top score, uh, complete the challenge, get 20 rings, uh, you know, all these different things. And if you do all of them, you get an extra vault key. And vault keys are what you use to have access to and unlock uh, access to the crystals, the chaos crystals. So I've thoroughly enjoyed what I was able to do in the three hours that I played. I did get to meet the character, the friend of Sonic, that is kind of trapped in between realms, if you will, and, and this island. And it's Tails, who is my favorite Sonic friend, if you will. And if you grew up in the 90s like I did, then it kind of makes sense, in my opinion, that Tails would be the guy that <laughs> is, is my most favorite. Knuckles, I get it, is probably a very close uh, second, but I just feel... If you grew up in the 90s with those games, I mean, there was just something about Tails. There was no way you were not going to like this character. So as Sonic, I meet up with Tails, and basically, the way it's been on the previous two islands is you have to do certain challenges around the island. And these challenges, they'll give you specific items that you'll need a certain quantity of to continue to, uh, I guess, bridge the gap <laughs> between realms and get tails completely in one over the other as opposed to being split between the two. So I continue to do that and I, it's just a lot of fun. I mean, especially when you are just really feeling that sense of speed. I had a boss fight. It was, I don't know if it was a full on boss fight. I considered a mini boss fight. It definitely wasn't a Titan in the sense of, Hey, this is the final Titan of the Island. Like I've had in the past, but it was a boss fight that was pretty epic. It was right up there with those other Titan boss fights that I've had in the previous two islands. And it was just a lot of fun. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed my time with it. If, if I had all the time in the world gamers, I would definitely see myself as putting this as a focal game of mine where I just focused on it. And this is all I would play until I probably got all thousand G because I had made the declaration that I was going to do a quest for a thousand G on this game, which means that I'm going to try to go for all thousand gamer score in the game. And I'm still planning on doing that as I pick away at it. And so ultimately I just had a really great time in chaos Island, uh, completing challenges, upgrading some more of Sonic's health and his speed really is, is what I was focusing on. When you have the option between speed and ring capacity, I really have seen that speed is really the priority, at least for me, because especially when it comes to those cyberspace uh, challenges or, or levels, I mean, that speed is, is what it's all about, really. And if you have the higher your speed, the, the quicker you're going to be able to defeat all those challenges, get all those keys. So that was my time this past week in Sonic Frontiers. Now, let's go talk about the next game that I played that was another even bigger surprise for me to play, which was MLB The Show 23. <laughs> Gamers, my history with MLB The Show 23 is not really that long of one. I really only played it when it first came out back in April, and I only played two games in a franchise that I had started playing as the Atlanta Braves. Obviously, that is my favorite team in baseball, always has been, always will be, and Considering I didn't play MLB The Show 22, and then with MLB The Show 21, I bought that. And, I mean, I put some time into it. I created my team, I created the jerseys, I created a stadium, and then I played probably about 30 games in the season of that year. Now, 30 games probably sounds like a lot, especially since I don't play or lock or do anything like that. I play the entire game broadcast style, all nine innings, if not more, if necessary. And I mean, that's, that's a decent amount of time. That's probably a solid 30 hours just on games. And then I spent a good chunk of hours creating my stadium and jerseys. So I put some time into MLB The Show 21. And that's one reason why I did not buy 22 
One, I didn't really see there was any major improvements or updates or additions that I didn't get in 21. And plus, I was just like, man, I just created this team. I dropped 30 plus hours into this game. I'll just kind of stick with 21 for right now. But with MLB The Show 23, I mean, there was a lot of new things came out like the Negro Leagues and different things like that. But in general, I just really wanted an updated roster and the most recent current version of the game. So thankfully it is on game pass so i was able to check it out without having to fork out another 70 bucks for it at least initially and i gotta tell you I'm, I'm pretty much at the point where i think i might go ahead and buy this game because i have enjoyed playing it that much this past week believe it or not i was able to play five games more <laughs> in that franchise i started out at the beginning of the franchise at the season with three games against the nationals two of which i had already played way back when i first tried out the game so in this play session it was actually over the course of multiple play sessions in a couple of days because i just kept going back to it i was like man i'm just loving this and i played the game against the nats and unfortunately i lost this game but i was still enjoying it enough to where i wanted to keep playing so up next was a three game series that i could play against the st louis cardinals now the first two games of that series I actually did really well and, and won those games. And when you go into the third game of the series, ah, oh man, I was going for that series sweep. And the commentators even mentioned it at the beginning of the game. They're like, yeah, Atlanta's looking to go for the series sweep against the cards, blah, blah, blah. Man, it was one of those games, gamers, where it started off, nobody was scoring. And then I want to say they scored first, and then I tied it. And we just stayed kind of tied for a few innings. But then I pulled ahead. Well... I don't say that it's sports game shenanigans, which is what me and Graveyard Gamer from the Graveyard Gamer podcast over right here on Spotify, as well as many other podcast platforms. Check his show out. If you like mine, you like his. And him and I have talked about it for years. We call it sports game shenanigans, where in sports games, you could just be dominant and the other team does nothing the entire game. But the second you start scoring out of nowhere, the next few innings in baseball specifically here, we'll, we'll use that example. They just back-to-back -back home runs, grand slams, all kinds of crazy stuff. And I'm just like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> like you guys weren't doing nothing the entire game. And now all of a sudden I'm starting to pick up. So you guys are picking up that sports game shenanigans. So I won't say that I felt that it was genuinely sports game shenanigans. But I, I it just it was still frustrating enough because to be kind of fighting hard back and forth the entire game and finally pull ahead to have them all of a sudden now now they're getting hits dropping over left field and right field and in between left and center and things like that or I personally am making stupid errors like holding on too long if you don't know there's a, a throwing meter I'm holding on too long for the throw meter on a ground ball at a second to throw out at first or something like that and I screw up a double play it's just little things like that so I took the loss on the chin lost it but i still won the series so i didn't get to sweep with the cards but i was still enjoying what i was playing so i started the next series which is a four game series against the san diego padres and this series is finally believe it or not my first time ever playing in the braves home stadium of truest park in atlanta georgia now the reason why uh, it's the first time ever even having played mlb 21 the show i that game all i ever played was in rival teams or my created stadium and the thing is is you have to choose a team out of the 30 baseball clubs that are already in existence 
you have to choose one of those teams that your team that's created is going to replace and basically take over that team. So for me, I chose the Braves because I wanted that lineup. Well, I didn't get to play in Truist Park is my point. So now I was finally excited to play a game in Truist Park. And it was actually really cool because I know the details of the park pretty well from watching a lot of the Braves games and the recaps and things like that. So it was actually pretty cool. I played that first game of the four-game set. And I did end up uh, winning that game against the Padres. So I was very happy to be able to get a win back on the board. I am right now kind of vying and tied for second in the National League East. But it's a lot of fun. I mean, the graphics in this game just baffle me every time I load up and I'm sitting there playing. I'm just like, man, these are so clear, so crisp, so gorgeous. Not to mention, I love the little details that... Uh, the developers have put into this game. I mean, when you look into a crowd, first off, they're all polygonal. They're all 3D and moving. And I just, I think back to the days where we had just cardboard cutouts is what the the crowds were in like the PlayStation 1 era and things like that. But man, these are actually like, these. some people are standing, some people are sitting, some people have their arms up and waving around and cheering. Other people, you can see them. I counted all the different snacks that I could see people holding. And I mean, gamers, they got pretzels, nachos, popcorn. I mean, all the kind of stuff that you could get at a baseball game. You see people, people are drinking. They have drinks in their hands and they, they will raise them to sip out of them. And this is all like, everybody's got their own animations and it's all different and fluid. So it just looks awesome and, and genuine and real. And I love it. I mean, it's just awesome. So there's just so many little details that are in this game that if you love baseball, I even love the presentation. I love how each game is just catered to its market, whether it's the South market for like the Atlanta Braves or whatever the case may be, whether it's a uh, broadcast style or you have nationally televised games, which are broadcast differently, the different graphics for using the team logos and the scorecard and everything. I just, I love all those little nerdy little details, but Thoroughly enjoyed my time back in MLB The Show 23 this past week. A massive surprise along with Sonic. So some great time I actually spent on the Xbox this past week. But none of it compared to the amazingness that was Final Fantasy 16. Gamers, as I jump into my progress in Final Fantasy 16 over this past week, I gotta tell you, this game just continues to impress me. Every week, week after week, play session after play session... I just fall more and more in love with this game. And after having dropped another 14 hours this past week, which, mind you, puts me at a total of 94 hours. 94 hours I have completely put into this game at this point. And I know for a fact at this point I'm definitely going to be over that 100-hour mark, which is insane because, honestly, ask me a month ago, I would have told you I don't think I'm going to hit 100 hours in Final Fantasy 16. But here I am. I'm 97% complete according to the progress tracker on the PS5. Now, that progress tracker does only track the main storyline percentage completion. So 97% complete with the main story. That's 11% increase over last week if you're keeping track. And I got to tell you, the the main story, let me talk about that first. Man, so I did make some great progress in it. And obviously, with 97% complete, I am winding down to what is sure to be just... I'm imagining just this epic ending to the game. Uh, I'm also expecting it to be pretty freaking emotional, to be honest with you. The way that things are setting up and just the different storylines that are kind of coming to a close and different things with different characters. I'm just like, man, it is going to be one of those endings. And I'm honestly extremely excited. It's a bittersweet feeling for me because 
I just I love this game. It's it's become home to me uh, over the past month and a half since it released, and I've been playing it. If that makes sense, you know, you ever get to a point in a game where you just feel so comfortable playing it, so comfortable going back to it that you're just so in love with it that you you don't really want to stop coming back to it, and it's kind of awkward going to the next game, transitioning out of what you've been doing so much of over the past month or two in this case. Well, that's kind of where I'm at with Final Fantasy 16. And specifically what I did, though, in that main story, it did take me to the continent of Ash. So there's two continents in this game, and the bulk of the game you spend on the continent of Storm. These are the, the twins, is what they call them in the game. The twin continents, Storm and Ash. So Ash has been kind of built up over the entire course of the game as this kind of a, a dark and foreboding continent. And don't get me wrong, it, it was. And it was a lot of fun to explore. Because, finally, I was able to travel through the kingdom of Walud and its western shores all the way across the continent to the east to essentially march on the capital of Stone here. And that's where King Barnabas, or Odin, he is the dominant of Odin, the icon, and he's waiting for me there now. And the final showdown with him and the final mother crystal in the game, as far as we can tell, to destroy. And this mother crystal is called Drake's Spine. And I loved in the game that aspect of it, too, that all the mother crystals, they weren't just these blank crystals, you know? It just wasn't just generic mother crystals. No, they all had Drake's spine, Drake's eye, Drake's breath. So they all related in some way to a dragon, which I thought was actually just really cool because the developers could have easily very much just left it at, at a mother crystal. It's a crystal. But I love that little tiny little nuance and that detail. So... There are some great story moments with Clive and I'll just say his group, his party along the way. I mean, I just loved the massive area that you have to cover as you are going across the continent of Ash. There are some great boss fights and story revelations that happened during all this and just some really cool locations that I knew as I came across them, just kind of passing through at that point in time, that there was gotten, there's no context to these areas at that point. But I could just tell by the names of the locations and the way this, the game had been so far up to this point that guaranteed I'm going to be coming back here on some side quests that are going to give me that context and just probably be really pretty cool. You also really get an origin story of the game's world of Valistia as you, the player, know it during these segments of story. And I loved every ounce of it just to kind of get that backstory and that understanding of why certain characters and things are happening to the level and the way that they are. It was just really awesome to be able to get an understanding of that and, and see what had happened all those centuries ago and kind of understand why the main antagonist of the game is so bent on doing what they want to do. So where I'm at in the main story now, I'm pretty sure it's probably going to be the last main quest or maybe the next to last main quest. But the way everything is going right now, everything is lining up for this to be the end game. This is it. So I'm very excited, again, but bittersweet, to be coming to a close with the story. But I got to tell you, there is a ton of side stuff for me to still do in this game. Before I had the option to go to finalize the main quest, the amount of side quests that just dropped in. There was at least eight of them that dropped into my lap. And all of these side quests just look and sound, for the most part, I would say all but maybe one or two, just sounded awesome. I mean, they just, I, I was super stoked to get started on doing these side quests because each one of them, they all 
kind of pertain to a main character or a piece of lore from the game that you actually, oh my God, I get to understand, like I get to see what that is or I get to understand who this person is or where this came from, you know, that kind of thing. And I am very excited to get really just lost in these side quests. I was only able to complete one of them so far, and I'll talk about that a little bit later here in a sec. But man, these side quests just look legit. I think it's funny because the game started off so... I was very much on the fence about this game at the beginning and looking at it ahead now 94 hours later. It didn't take that long for me to get here, but man, it's just looking back to where it started and the same thing with side quests, how they started out being very much like, oh, these are almost pretty much just fetch quests. Like, what is this? And to see where they have come pretty much almost after that first batch of side quests and just they've consistently gotten better and better and better throughout the course of the game. So I can't wait to get to these side quests. In addition to that, I still do have some notorious marks to take out on the hunting board right now there are four that are on the hunting board that i haven't defeated yet and those four will give me a total of 27 marks defeated which means there's still five left that haven't dropped in there yet because there's a total of 32 in the game so i still have to take out all the marks i still have to do all these side quests i also have three more chronolith to complete and if you've listened to the show recently, you'll know that I've made my way through at least the one. But over the course of the last week, I was able to knock out the others, the three that I came across. And I got to tell you, it's just been really exciting, each chronolith, whenever I defeat it. Because the first chronolith, I ended up completing it with literally six seconds left. Well, that was nothing compared to the second chronolith that I defeated with two-tenths of a second left. And then the next two chronolists that I defeated, it really wasn't about the time. It was really more about my health. And I was just about dead on both of those chronoliths, but was able to pull it out and, and make it a successful attempt. So I just have three of those left because there's seven in the game. And I look forward to getting to those. The Garuda or the wind-oriented uh, chronolith, I got to be honest, I'm not really looking forward to going back to that one because I've tried it before once or twice. And I just really don't like those moves, to be honest. So I'm, I'm going to have to just kind of pace myself when I go back to it. But regardless, I am very much just absolutely still loving my time in this game, even though I'm just about 100 hours into it. But out of everything that I played this past week in the game and all the other games that I played that I talked about, what ended up being my highlight of the week? Gamers, out of all that I've played this past week over the three games that I just discussed, there was one side quest that stood out to me above everything else that I did. And obviously, this is coming from Final Fantasy 16. And let me just say that it was a side quest that's a very personal side quest to the main character of Clive. And as the player, I mean, over the course of the time you put into the game and its world and its characters and kind of getting to know them and the, the relationships that they have and just kind of in a way, attaching to that, and I don't know how else to describe it or if you're like me or not, but man, I mean, you kind of put yourself in the shoes of a protagonist, or at least I do when I'm playing a game or watching a movie or reading a book, and in this case, that's Clive, and there's this character, I'm not going to say who it is because I, I'm trying to be very much uh, avoiding uh, any spoilers here, but let's just say it is a character that uh, Clive shares this very special emotional side quest with and i gotta tell you uh it, it definitely almost had me shedding a tear there because it was extremely emotional and just really well done by square enix to be honest with you the the 
the different framings they did and the cutscenes, the way they played out and certain things. It was just really cool too, outside of the emotional aspect of it. It was just kind of cool to see that part of Clive and, and certain aspects of his past. So bottom line, just an amazing side quest. And also I hope a hint of what's more to come <laughs> from these other side quests that I was talking about. They just sound really awesome. So I cannot wait to see if more of them are are very much in line with what this was. And as I said, I mean, the side quest in the game have just gotten better and better and better as the game has gone on. So definitely was uh, anytime there's a game and a scene or a sequence that is making me uh, about to cry, uh, I, I just definitely, man, takes the cakes for me. So highlight of the week. Now let's go open up a chest of buried treasure gaming tips I have for you in Final Fantasy 16. My tip for you this week in Final Fantasy 16 is all about making sure you have the right items, the right crafting items, in order to craft the best weapon in the game on your first playthrough, and that weapon is Gotterdammerung. Now, this sword, I say, is the best weapon on your first playthrough because it's not the best weapon in the game. Just like every Final Fantasy game, the best weapon is always the Ultima weapon. You can't get that, though, unless you're playing on New Game Plus. So if you're playing your first playthrough and you want to have the best weapon that you can possibly have to go to take on the final boss and all those in-game quests, Gotterdammerung is your weapon. Now, in order to craft this, you're going to have to have three key crafting items, and those, or three of the same crafting items, I should say, and that is Orichalcum. Now, Orichalcum is very rare, and the only way that you can get it is by defeating certain notorious marks that I've talked about before on the hunting boards, and there is a side quest that you can also get Orichalcum from. Now, initially, I just want to clarify for you guys out there, because initially I was given the impression that there are not enough Orichalcum in the game to craft the three different items available to craft requiring Orichalcum. So there's two accessories that you can craft, the Ouroboros and the Sons of Ouroboros, and those each require one Orichalcum, and then you have three Orichalcum as the requirement for Gotterdammerung, the sword. Well, initially, I'm like, all right, well, if you can only get like four Orichalcum is what I was being told, then uh, I'm definitely going for the weapon. I'd rather have a better, the best weapon as opposed to uh, at a defense or stagger, which is what the other weapons do. So for me, I made it a point that, all right, when I get Orichalcum, I'm not even touching it because you get the crafting recipes for the Ouroboros before you get the crafting recipe for Gotterdammerung. So if you're completely unaware of this as you're playing through the game, you may have no idea. And if you're like me, as soon as I had enough of the crafting items to craft a certain accessory or weapon, I was doing it. So knowing this ahead of time, I was like, all right, I'm not touching Orichalcum until I have everything needed and I craft Gotterdammerung. Well, I'm here to tell you, I can debunk that theory because there is, in fact, five Orichalcum that you get if you're just doing everything in the game. If you're going after all, after all the hunting board uh, notorious marks, and if you're going after and doing all the side quests, then you will inevitably, inadvertently, get all five Orichalcum and therefore be able to craft both accessories and Gotterdammerung. So I just wanted to put that out there as a tip to clarify and just to let you guys know and be aware that you have to do certain side quests as well as those two notorious marks on the hunting board. So happy hunting. Hopefully that helps you guys out. Now it's time to check in with my monthly gamer score quest and trophy level progress updates. First up, trophy level progress. Gamers, if you followed my trophy level progress month to month and you heard my last month's episode, then you'll know that I had a trophy level of 237, 
90% towards level 238. And I had given myself a goal of reaching trophy level 240 by the time of this recording. Was I successful in doing that? Well, let's see how many trophies I unlocked and ultimately where that left me. Over the past month, I was able to unlock 28 trophies, 27 of which were bronze and one was silver. Was that enough to get roughly two trophy levels further? Gamers, it was not. <laughs> it was enough to get me one trophy level further because my trophy level is now 238 93% to trophy level 239. So even if I had gotten two more bronze trophies, because right now the way it equates is there are bronze trophies that equal 3% each trophy, silver trophies 6%, so on and so forth. So I do know that if I had gotten two more bronze, I would have gotten to trophy level 239, but still been a whole trophy level away from my goal. So at this point... My new goal that I'm going to give to myself by the end of this month, I'm still going to give myself a goal of reaching trophy level 240 because, again, I'm right there in the final stages of Final Fantasy. There's a lot of silver trophies, gold, bronze, all kind of mixtures of things. Plus, I'm wanting to finish up Burning Shores and Horizon. I feel pretty good about the fact that by the next month's recording of trophy level progress, I should be able between those two games and all the trophies that come with I should be able to get to that trophy level 240 by then. So check back next month to see if I was successful in doing so. So that's this month's trophy level progress update. Now let's go check in on the Xbox side of things and see how I fared in my gamer score quest goal. Gamers, this past month I didn't play a whole lot of Xbox, but I did dabble as I like to call it. Obviously, we've already talked about this episode, my time in Sonic Frontiers and MLB The Show 23. But I also, I didn't really go into the details of these next two games because cumulatively, I only played one whole hour between them. <laughs> and these other two games were Yakuza Like a Dragon and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge. So I played about a half hour for each game and that was it. But... I mentioned them here because I did unlock a trophy in both Yakuza Like a Dragon and Shredder's Revenge. The one in Yakuza being for 10 points, the one in Shredder's Revenge being 25 points. Now, when we look at the other two games that I talked about earlier, each one of those I also unlocked a trophy in each game. A 40-point trophy in MLB The Show 23, and also a 20-point in Sonic Frontiers. Now, if you were following the show, last month I had a gamer score of 295,122, and I had given myself a goal of reaching 296,000 by this recording. So, not too crazy is what it sounds, right? It's what, 878 gamer score? Well, between the four games and the just few hours that I played, was that enough in the achievements that I just listed off that I got? Well, if you're quick with math, then you'll probably know that the four achievements I unlocked were for 60 gamer score, which last time I checked was not enough to get me to my goal. I currently sit at 295,217 gamer score and therefore will be still retaining my goal of reaching 296,000 by September and the end of August. Now, the reality is, am I actually going to do that? Uh, I don't know, because over the next few weeks, 
Again, I've already talked about Final Fantasy and completing it, as well as Horizon Forbidden West, Burning Shores. I don't really know a whole lot of Xbox that's going to be happening between now and September 1st, but I'll tell you what, gamers. Going forward for the rest of the year, <laughs> Starfield, September 1st, Early Access, I'm there. And then between Mortal Kombat 1 and Alan Wake 2 and Assassin's Creed Mirage and a lot of stuff this fall that I plan on getting on Xbox, I do feel pretty confident that I should pass that 296. And also, if you followed me all season, my very first episode of the season, I give myself a yearly goal for gamer score and for trophy level. For gamer score, I really, really, really finally want to hit that 300,000 mark, that milestone of cracking that next 100,000. So I'm hoping that this fall with those games, I will be successful in doing so. But check back month to month, see how I progress, and see if it comes down to bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, two outs, and I'm up at bat, and I got to get a, a just a base hit to win the game and therefore hit my 300,000, to use a, a baseball analogy there. So that's this month's Gamer Score Quest update. Next up, I did promise you gamers last week, if you listened to last week's episode, that I was going to do an accessory review this week on the Starfield headset, since last week I did the Starfield controller. So now let's go see what my thoughts were and my review are for or the Starfield headset. Accessory review. Gamers, I gotta admit that right now my hype level to get into the world of Starfield is at an all-time high. Higher than it's ever been since the announcement of the game. And man, I tell you, Xbox knows how to drive that hype even higher, at least in my opinion. Two months ago now, we had a press conference for Xbox that ended up showing off all kinds of different amazing looking games and then there was the starfield direct and at the starfield direct even though they had already been kind of leaked and we knew they were coming they showed off the starfield controller and a starfield headset and immediately went on sale now i already have a headset that i've been using for a couple years now on the xbox but when i saw this starfield headset i said man that is one sexy looking headset i gotta get it i i, I there's not even a question here i'm getting the controller bar none I have to get this headset. This just looks awesome. And to be honest with you, I had been for a very long time looking at the official Xbox headset, the wireless one, for a while and considering whether or not I wanted to go that route as opposed to the Lucid Gaming headset, which was a phenomenal headset and treated me very well over the years that I had it. But there's just something about having that officially tied in or officially branded headset for your console at least for me because that's why i love the 3d pulse headset and have used that for years now on the ps5 and now with the starfield headset i can't wait to give you my review and my detailed thoughts so the way i do these accessory reviews i don't give a numbered score basically i'm going to tell you at the end whether i feel like it's a must buy you have to purchase this or if you only really need to buy this if you're a collector of that kind of stuff or the third possible rating is just keep it moving. Don't even worry about it. Don't even look at it. It's not worth it. So first off, as far as the review is concerned, I'm going to start with the aesthetics as I always do. And the, the looks and design of this headset are just amazing. I love the colors. The first off, I'll start with, you know, what wraps around your head on the top, the headband. And it's a gray, kind of a gray-ish uh, top that's plastic, but then underneath it, the cushiony part that rests on your head, it's this really nice red color. And on top of that, the side ear cups, man, they have that, if you've ever seen the officially branded Xbox headset, you'll know what I'm talking about. They have these 
kind of giant discs or circles is what kind of highlights that headset, but it's just kind of black with a green outline around it. Well, this is white as the dominant color, but it also has all these different designations and text, kind of like the controller did, but specifying what you can do as far as volume control and different things like that, in addition to other Starfield-centric kind of lingo is the way I'll put it. And then the, the ear cups themselves, they are gray and it accents really well off of the white and then the red cushion and then the gray headband itself. So it just looks great, right? Well, if you guys listened to my episode last week, my favorite part about the Starfield controller were the clear triggers. I just thought it was just really cool. It looked awesome. And that kind of transitions here as well to the headset because the microphone is this clear microphone piece so again it just it's something about clear it just looks cool to be honest with you now when it comes to the functionality of the headset and the comfortability of it i'll start with comfortability first and let me just tell you this i will not even having to hesitate here this is the most comfortable headset that i have ever owned now back in the day i had some cheaper headphones that i had purchased I have also had the 3D Pulse, as I mentioned for years, the Lucid Gaming Heads, which is a notably high-end headset as well. But this is the absolute most comfortable headset that I have ever owned. I mean, it just feels extremely comfortable. Even with the 3D Pulse headset, sometimes I'll get my, my ears will start to hurt after extended use. That has not happened at all with this headset. It just it fits and feels so comfortable on the top with that red cushion, as well as those ear and ear cups and the way they cup around and kind of form around my ears. Man, for me, it is just extremely comfortable. Now, in functionality, one thing I love about it is the fact that when you first turn it on, there is a gold button on the back of the left cup. And when you press and hold this in, it turns it on. But the best and coolest thing about this headset is the fact that it, it in your ear, it plays a boot up sequence sound effect string. So it has kind of like a as if you're booting up into a system or you're booting up your ship. Obviously, it's Starfield, so it's tying into that in some way. So I just thought that was actually a really cool just an addition to the headset that they didn't need to do. And I just thought that was awesome. Never really seen anything like that before. So that's a huge, huge, big positive for me when it comes to the headset. So obviously this is going to be outputting in Dolby Atmos because that is what the Xbox puts out in compatible devices, whether it's TV, soundbar, or in this case, the headset. So let me just tell you, I will also say even better than the 3D Pulse, this is the best sounding headset that I have ever owned. So not only is it probably the sexiest looking, the most comfortable feeling, but it is also the best sounding headset that I've ever owned. It is phenomenal, <laughs> the sound in this headset, the way it comes through, the clarity, the immersion, the surround sound feeling that it gives. And I also feel like it does an amazing job of suppressing sound from the outside, that noise canceling that you always see as kind of a disclaimer or a claim, if you will, on boxes of headsets. Now, I tell you, they 100% live up to that with this headset. It is It completely cancels out any kind of outside noise, outside of obviously really extremely loud noises. But man, it is just awesome across the board. I love the look of it. I love the feel of it. I love the sound. It's just, it, it is my favorite headset that I've ever owned up to this point. So what is the review rating? Well, 
if you haven't guessed it already, for me, it is an absolute must-buy. Because even if you are an Xbox owner, but you're not looking forward to Starfield, I'd still say, I mean, it's not like it screams Starfield all over the headset. So you could still buy this. It's a cool-looking headset, and you're going to get the best quality sound possible, at least as what compared to what I've experienced out of this headset. So I absolutely recommend buying this, bar none, hands down. If you're looking for a headset, this is absolutely worth the money. And it is roughly $120, $130. So it, it, it's up there in price, but I would say it's definitely absolutely worth it. So that's my accessory review for the Starfield headset. Now, let's go check out this week's Captain's Decree. Gamers, this week on Captain's Decree, I'm going to pose the question, are consoles and console generations better off for being longer, or should they be and would they be better if they were shorter? Now, when I talk about the timeframes here of longer and shorter, what I'm going to use for this topic, shorter would mean a four-year life cycle for a console longer being seven to eight years. So about double the lifespan. So we'll just go with eight for the sake of conversation here to make it easy. Four and eight. So here's my opinion, gamers. There's pros and cons to both. Obviously, I feel like sometimes if you're going with a shorter life cycle of four years, developers may just be getting a to master the inner workings of a console by year three or even four. So just around the time they're really fully starting to capitalize on the power of that console and that generation as a whole, boom, they're hit with, hey, here's the dev kit for the next generation. And you got to get new games put out for it by, you know, a year or so from now. So we can move on to the next generation. But at the same time, there is something to be said about stagnancy. And I go back to what I said in my catch of the week at the beginning of the episode, where after a certain point in the length of the 360 and PS3 life cycle and console generation, me and a lot of my friends agreed that we were starting to get, I don't want to say bored, but we were just kind of ready to move on, if that makes sense, after seven, eight years playing the same generation and not seeing a whole lot of massive difference in what we were playing at the beginning of the generation to what was at the end of the generation. So I do think there is something to be said for having a shorter life cycle, because you look at the original Xbox generation, it was only four years, but man, as far as I'm aware, that generation of Xbox is looked back on very fondly. And not that the Xbox 360 wasn't, but think about this, the 360 for probably its first half of its console generation was looked on extremely fondly, had a ton of success, was leading Sony in console sales and market share. Well, what happens about halfway through? Oh, they change focus and start putting focus on the Kinect and all these different experiences and expanding the living room options to include everything in an Xbox. So that's all you want is an Xbox in your living room to do TV. And guess what? That then snowballed and bled into the launch of the Xbox One, the announcement debacle that everybody always still talks about to this day with Don Matrick and his really kind of just harsh words. So it leaves open the opportunity, a longer console generation leaves the opportunity there for things to kind of get off track. And to be honest with you, 
I look at the Xbox One and the PS4 generation as well, because look at the Xbox One. I felt like it started off pretty rocky, and by about the midway point, by about four years in, they had kind of found their place. And the back half of the generation with the Xbox One X was great going into the Series X generation. Now, the opposite can be said, though, because look at Sony. The PS3 started off pretty rough, and then it, in turn, in the back half, ended very well. So I think it can go both ways. Do I think that one is better than the other? Or I could tell you my personal preference. My personal preference would be five years. Right smack dab in the middle of that four to eight year range that I had put out there. And I think five years is the perfect time frame for a console generation. I feel like that's just enough time to really get a good adoption rate from your consumer, as well as allow developers time to fully maximize the technology that's within these boxes by year three, maybe the end of year three, beginning of year four, and give them one to two years, therefore, time to really show what these boxes are capable of, allow us gamers to experience those things and be ready to move on to the next generation before things get stagnant or before the companies like whether it's PlayStation making comments and deciding to go to sell technology and doing different things with the PS3 because of their hubris or Xbox and then deciding to focus on Connect and other things. Because not just us as consumers getting, I will say, bored or feeling stagnant with the generation, but also you got to think from the publisher standpoint and the console developer and creators, they are also probably at, after a point feeling stagnant or getting bored after five, six, seven years. So then therefore you have the connects and the PlayStation moves and, you know, different things like that of the world. So I really feel like five years is the ultimate perfect time frame. But either way, regardless, as long as you're putting out solid games and experiences for gamers, I think that gamers will still come and enjoy the time they have, however short or long it may be, on your console. That'll do it for this week's episode. I hope you've enjoyed your time aboard the SS Gamer. You can join its crew by reaching out to me via email at lostatseagaming365 at gmail.com, as well as searching for Hulking Yoda on the Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo Switch network. You can also find me on social media on Instagram and threads at lostatseagaming, and on Twitter at lostatseagamin, the number one. Thank you for listening, and until the sea says otherwise, we'll keep sailing.